to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to discover more of you through your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done uh, in our lives already and all that you're going to do. Father, we ask that even as we uh, go on for the rest of our lives, God, that we will be a people that will respond appropriately and accordingly, that we will respond to you to the measure of your worth, uh, that we will not be a people motivated simply by feeling or circumstance, but we will be a people that will be motivated to respond to you because you are worthy. You are worthy of all our passion, all that we have to give, all that we have to offer. So God, we ask, even in this service, that you will minister to hearts uh, with your presence and with your Holy Spirit. God, we believe that this morning you will transform hearts, you will cause lives to be changed. So we thank you for all that you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm getting married in November. Yeah. I'm joining the club. I tell you, man, some, some people have, uh, have been like, Andre, do you know this thing called sex? And, and, uh, and yeah, many people have been trying to talk to me about sex. So appreciate, appreciate the talks. Appreciate the talks. It's, it's good. <laughs> Um, and so we, we've been doing this thing uh, called premarital counseling. Me and Amy and uh, in, uh, in PMC we, uh, we we do it with John and Jane. Really appreciate them. And uh, PMC has been um, super impactful, super good for us. You know, we the first couple of weeks we were like going in and we we're like, you know, we're gonna withhold some information, you know, because we want to look nice and you know, I pastor, so I look pastor rich. And uh, and by the third week, we figured out that, you know, uh, let's, let's not do this anymore because John and Jane are so prophetic. So every time we sit down and the first thing out of their mouth is like, so uh, let's talk about this. And we're like, we just thought about this like five minutes ago. And so we, we, we dis- discovered and decided to, uh, yeah, just be good boys and good girls. But uh, one of the, uh, the, the sessions that I really love, uh, this might be morbid to some of you, um, that session uh, is, is two pages on the PMC book, and basically it's 20 like, scenarios that a couple may or may not go through. And these are all negative scenarios. They range from me losing my job, uh, another guy hitting on Amy, uh, it's very pretty, uh, you know, moving to another country to... Uh, having a miscarriage, to all sorts of like negative things. And what uh, we're supposed to do in the exercise, we're supposed to sit together and uh, discuss how we will approach each uh, scenario. I know some of you, oh, my heart cannot handle this kind of thing, but I, I love it. <laughs> so so we, we started talking through uh, all these things, you know, all these like, uh, negative scenarios and situations. And we're like, so what are you going to do in this situation? What are you going to do in this scenario? And at the end of the exercise, I felt so much faith and confidence in, uh, in marriage, you know, because um, through this exercise, I discovered uh, more about Amy, more about uh, the principles she, she helped to, more about uh, how she would respond to negative circumstance, and gave me so much faith and confidence, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I knew her uh, in a deeper way. I knew her in a greater measure and gave me more confidence in approaching marriage. In the first week of uh, this series, we talk about accessing the presence of God. We talk about this presence that uh, we all have access to because of what Jesus paid for us uh, on the cross, because of the new covenant. And the measure to which you know God and his goodness will determine the confidence in which you approach his presence. I'm going to say it again. The measure to which you know the Lord and his goodness will determine the confidence in which you approach his presence. And that's what, all, what week one is about. No? It's about the goodness of God. It's about him giving us access to the presence, that which was restricted, that which only the high priest had access to in the old covenant. Now because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I have free access to that presence. 
Yeah. I'm making sense. Yeah. No, here here at the city, you know, we we are we are committed to several things, and and one of the things we we are committed to is we're committed to becoming a a place, a community that models the atmosphere of heaven. You know, heaven is not an eventual destination, that, just an eventual destination that you go to. Heaven is really a reality that you can live with on planet Earth. Yes, yeah. Jesus said this to his disciples, pray in this manner, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Heaven really is a reality that you can live with on planet Earth. And as a community, as a church, we are committed to discovering what heaven is like and establishing it here on earth through this church, in our lives, and eventually in the the nation. And, you know, if you think about uh, atmosphere in in the context of like a greenhouse, what atmospheric conditions present in a greenhouse will determine what grows in that house. Does that make sense? And so with that, we can assume that if we collectively as a body of people steward and establish the atmosphere of heaven in this place, we will begin to see the manifestations of the reality of heaven in this place. Sickness being healed. Solutions discovered. Hopelessness destroyed. I don't know about you, but but I I want that. I don't think revival is... I, I, I don't subscribe to a lottery mentality when it comes to revival. Sometimes in the church, we, we think about it that way. If I just carry on my normal Christian life, one day, boom, revival happens and so safe. You know? But I, I don't think revival um, is supposed to be like that. I think revival is something that you get to have internally and express externally in the spheres uh, that God has entrusted you with. And collectively as a people, if we begin to think that way, and if we begin to go into our places of influence in that manner, could it be that that is how we will see a greater measure of God's kingdom displayed and manifested yeah. in our city? That's what revival is, right? It's the manifested presence of God in the city. God is in the business of co-laboring. It's time for us to say no to passive Christianity. Am I making sense? And so we, we are intentional with discovering what heaven is like and establishing heaven's atmosphere on planet Earth. And, you know, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are no longer bound by sin, chained by oppression, but now we are set free. Free to do what? Yeah. Right. Great question. <laughs> free to live your lives the same old? Yeah. Or free to perhaps rediscover the original mandate that was given to men. In the first week, I, I talked about how we have access to the presence. It says, all is sin and fallen short of the glory of God. By that, we can safely assume that we were all made for the glory and for the presence of God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're making sense. Yeah, yeah, and because of sin, you know, sin disqualified men from the presence of God, but Jesus Christ redeemed men by his blood, and now man has access to the presence. Can I put it to you that living on this side of the cross is all about discovering, not just about discovering what Christ has paid for you and what you have access to because of the new covenant, but living on this side of the cross is about discovering from where we have fallen. Am I making sense? We started here. We started with having the presence. We started with being connected with God. We started with having that, that daily intimate connection to the Lord. But because of sin, we fell. And Jesus restores us back to that place. I'm making sense. And man, in the context of the presence in communion with God, was given a mandate. And the mandate is this. Have dominion over every living thing. Rule. Establish God's kingdom on the earth. Extend the boundaries of Eden. That was the mandate given to man. Bring heaven to earth. And a new way to be human, it means this. It means that, that because of what Jesus has done for you and I, okay, we no longer live life the old way. Okay? Dealing with sin, being oppressed, living in darkness, but now we are restored to our original kingdom purpose right. and mandate. Yeah. Right. Am I making sense? Yes. 
And that is the great privilege we have as believers. We are set free in order to bring freedom to the captives. We are set free for a kingdom purpose. You're not just set free for freedom's sake, but you're set free to live kingdom, to bring kingdom, to establish God's kingdom on the planet. That is what you were designed to do. You were designed for that very purpose. Is that making sense? Come on. So we're on this journey of discovering what heaven is like, you know, what, what we have access to uh, because of the blood of Jesus and what God longs for us to establish on the planet. And um, let's look at a verse, uh, Luke chapter 2. It says this, um, and this is uh, uh, describing Jesus' birth. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in sorting cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to men. I put it to you that Jesus came and one of the primary missions that he, he came to planet Earth with was to establish peace on Earth. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Peace on Earth. You know, the Bible describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace. You know, Paul would, uh, the Bible described the gospel as the gospel of peace. That making sense? Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know how else I can convince you. His message explained peace, his death purchased peace, his resurrected presence enables peace. The messianic predictions were that he would be the prince of peace. Peace is all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And, you know, we're all familiar with that word to to some degree, you know. I have peace, and and that's often uh, what we say when we want to make a major decision. You know, I have peace, and I'm going to make this major decision, right? I don't know. Only me? Only me? No. All of you do it, okay? I know all of you do it. Yeah. I have peace. Therefore, I'm making this major decision. And it's almost like the trump card, you know? It's like, cannot win with it. I have peace. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, Jesus came to establish peace. Yeah. And um, the word... Is this, is this still okay? Okay, yeah? Okay. The word peace, you know, is, is the Hebrew word shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. Shalom, and, and shalom is where we... Uh, how we describe the word peace. But... Shalom, uh, I'd like to uh, teach you this morning, shalom doesn't only mean peace. Mm-hmm. It's like if I look at my father and, say, and people ask me, describe your father, and I say, my father is my provider. How many of you know that that is true? Yeah. Yes, my dad is my provider. Right. But that is true, but that is not the whole truth. Right. Yeah. There's so much more to my dad than him just being my provider. Yeah. And the same goes for shalom. Shalom means Peace, yes it does, but it encompasses so much more. The word shalom actually goes on to describe prosperity, it describes completeness, it describes wholeness, body, soul, and spirit. The word shalom can be applied in literally every area of your life. Peace is that prevailing atmosphere of heaven, but peace is also that, that, that thing, shalom, that impacts every area of your life. Wholeness, completeness. And one definition, it says contentedness. To be content is shalom. To be Christian is to be about the works of Christ. And what I've established earlier is Jesus came with a mission, with a heart to bring peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and peace toward all men. Shalom, completeness, wholeness, contentedness. To be Christian is to be about the works of Christ. Yeah, yeah. If that is the work that Christ has come to establish on planet Earth, then you and I ought to be about that business as well. Yeah. Matthew 5, it says this. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Yeah. That's right. The word peacemaker literally translates to being a person whose mission and purpose on planet Earth is peace. Mm, right. A person like that, a person whose mission is peace, will be called the sons of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. And sons, if you understand it in the Jewish culture, 
sons, when it's ever mentioned in a, a, a writing like that, would describe a person who most adequately, accurately represents his father. Blessed are those who are on a mission of peace, who have come to bring peace on the planet because they look like their father. To be Christian is to be about the works of Christ. Is that making sense? John chapter 20, verse 19 to 21, it says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sight. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We are to be on that mission of peace. And this is what I want to propose to you this morning, that there is a new way to be human, and it's the way of peace. And that is my sermon title this morning, The Way of Peace. Don't worry if you're confused. I will unconfuse you by the end of the message. I know, I'm I'm jumping too many hoops here. I believe peace is the most sought-after thing on the planet. I believe peace is the most sought-after thing on the planet. Some people profess to uh, seek some stuff. Like, my vision on the planet is I want to be very rich. Or my vision on the planet is I want to have uh, XX amount of things. Or I want to be in that position, this position. I want to have these things going in my life. I want to be free of worry. But that honestly is, you know, those things, those pursuits are a means to a desired end. And the end is peace. At the end of the day, everyone is searching, looking, thirsting for peace. Everyone wants peace. It's the most sought-after thing on the planet. Some people try to find it through alcohol, through vices, through uh, addictions, through meditation, through religion. Everyone is on a search for peace, whether they know it or not. They are looking to live life that way. Everyone is searching for that elusive thing called peace. Am I making sense? Yes. You know, peace, the dictionary would define it as a freedom from disturbance. Ooh, that sounds beautiful. Because nothing is troubling me, nothing is bothering me, nothing is worrying me. It's, it's that feeling of there, there is nothing that is going to disturb me, trouble me, irritate me. That is what the world defines as peace. Shalom. Contentedness, wholeness. When that... When that happens, I will truly be contented. But how many of you know that if your peace is dependent on a circumstance or a, 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 a ideal set of situations, if you will, the moment that changes, your peace goes. That making sense? Right? If you put the responsibility of you being at peace with someone else, then that person honestly has control over whether you are at peace or not. You making sense? You know, um, how many of you saw my brother's testimony video? Yes? I tell you, beautiful. Like, share, subscribe. No, share it. Share it. Um, I, was, I was talking to my brother you know, after he, he encountered a lot. You know, he was a snotty mess. It's beautiful. It's, Christian recreation right there. So I was like, oh, sorting. And I was talking to him, and I was like, like you know what, what are you feeling? What are you sensing? Uh, uh, you know, what's going on? And this is what he said to me. He said, you know, I feel peace. And I was like, okay, you know, that's a very normal uh, reply. But what struck me after that was what he said. He said, you know, I still have so many questions. I still have so many doubts. Everyone is hugging me. I'm crying, and I don't know why I'm crying. But I feel peace. I feel peace. That's not the world's definition of peace. Yeah. The world's definition of peace is everything's worked out, yeah. everything's calm, smooth sailing, yeah. peace. Yeah. But his experience of peace is there's still so much going on, but I am at peace yeah, within. Yeah. What is that? What is that? What is kingdom peace? What is heavenly peace that is not uh, predicated on an ideal set? of situations or circumstances turning out the way you would want it to turn out. 
What is that peace? That prevailing sense, or that, that atmosphere of heaven, what is that peace? That is constant and steadfast despite of all these things that were going around him. What is that peace? I don't know. I'm curious. I'll tell you next week. No, I'm just kidding. You're, you're not very... I wish you could see your face. It's like, maybe I should have like a camera here then you can see it. <laughs> I want to propose something to you, okay? Track with me, okay? Give me two minutes. Matthew chapter 10 says, uh, Jesus says this to his disciples uh, as he's commissioned them. He says, uh, I commission you to go into houses. And uh, when you go to the house, search for the man of peace. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon them. Today, when we talk about a man of peace, we always talk about a man of peace as a person of influence. You know, when you go into a nation, a close nation, or go to a, a territory or a sphere of influence, like search for the man of peace. Search for that person and search for that person of influence and that person will begin to open doors for you so that the gospel can go through. Man of peace equals man of influence. He who has the most peace has the most influence. Everyone is on a search for peace. Everybody wants peace, whether they know it or not. If you can become a person of peace, he who has the most peace has the most influence. So Jesus says this to the disciples. Go into these houses, search for the man of peace, and let your peace come upon them. Hold that thought. Put a bookmark on that thought. Let's look at next set of scriptures, Mark chapter 4. Okay. And this is Jesus on the boat. We're all very familiar with the story, okay? So I don't have to explain. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Next slide. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind, wind, wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So let's, let's look at the story together. Okay. So the disciples were in a boat, the sea. In a Jewish culture, the sea is known to be a place of evil. Look it up. Okay. Jews are, even though the disciples, most of them, like a chunk of them were fishermen, but Jews, they do not like to go to sea because the sea has always been associated with evil. You know, read revelations, read the different prophecies. The beasts somehow always come out from sea, and so they're like, sea equals evil. And so they're like, I don't want to go near the sea. And so the disciples were in a boat with the Messiah, and they were panicking because of how uh, bad the sea conditions were. Okay? Follow me. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Can you sleep when you are uh, panicking, when you are not at rest? Can you sleep that way? No. no. You can only fall asleep when you are at rest right. or if you have medication, which is, <laughs> I do not advise. <laughs> so Jesus was at, at rest. He was at peace. Okay? Disciples woke him up okay, and like, Jesus, how can you be sleeping? Do you not care? that we are perishing and all these like, things were going around them, the seas were raging, the storms were raging, but Jesus was at complete rest, at peace. He was sleeping. I put it to you this morning that peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a person. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a person. Kingdom peace doesn't come when you arrive to an eventual conclusion by using a pros and cons list, kingdom peace doesn't come through uh, uh, facts and, and through, uh, you know, whatever have you. Kingdom peace comes from the person of Jesus. Yeah. 
Y'all making sense? That is the, the peace that, that we have. That's the peace that we subscribe to. Not a logical peace. That's why the Bible would say that he gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that you and I have, the world cannot make sense of. It's illogical. Of course, you can't, you can't really explain it. It's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a person. And you and I were called to be peacemakers. We're called to be on the mission of peace. We're called to carry that prevailing sense of the atmosphere of heaven. We're called to carry that peace wherever we go. Whatever negative situations we find ourselves into, whatever conflict, whatever circumstance, we're called to carry that peace. He who has the most peace has the most influence. Everybody is on the search for peace. Making sense? Peace peace doesn't ignore the conflict. How many of you with me? But peace denies the conflict a place of influence. Uh, I think that's good. Peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of person. Number six, the uh, ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That making sense? And so, you know, I I talk about peace being such a, a, a broad thing, a wholeness, completeness, contentness. And, and you know, I, I don't think I can like, fully, adequately describe peace even if I had 10 weeks with you, you know, because it's so all-encompassing, right? We can go into all these like, situations that, you know, oh yeah, you know, but peace says this, or you know, when uh, peace means that you, know, you have breakthrough, you have victory in this area, that area, this area. I don't think we can fully exhaust how uh, all-encompassing, how able peace is how, how much peace is able to impact every area of life. I don't think we are fully exhausted. It's so big. Because it's, it's a person. It's, it's Jesus. It's the presence of a person. And what then is the implication if peace is a person? It's him. I, I submit to you this morning that in order to have peace established in your life, you need to submit to he who is peace. In order to have peace established in your life, you need to come under submission of peace. Isaiah describes the government of God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. You know, we think of peace as calm, smooth sailing, nothing's going on. But you know, the Bible would describe uh, Jesus and he says this, he says that it's the Prince of Peace that crushes the head of Satan. It's the Prince of Peace that crushes the head of Satan. That's, that's, that's amazing, right? What, what, what does that look like to you and me? What does that mean to me? It means this. It means that, that no matter what circumstance or negative thing the enemy throws my way, if I am able to remain in a place of peace, I crush every influence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, if I'm able to maintain peace, I am literally warring against the efforts of the enemy. It it says this to me. It says says that the goal of the enemy is to rob your peace and to replace it with fear. I put it to you that peace, or I want to expand it, faith. Faith and fear are essentially powered by the same thing, focus. What you put your focus on, you eventually power. Faith and fear are powered by the same thing. And the enemy wants to draw your focus away from the Heavenly Father in which you are connected to, to the negative circumstances he places in front of you. He wants you to be impressed with the the sheer uh, negativity that he throws at you instead of being caught up by your Heavenly Father. It's the Prince of Peace that crushes the head of Satan. When we are in peace, when we have peace, we war against the demonic. We war against the efforts of the enemy. That's right. I, I, I want to show you a picture. I, not, not a picture, but paint a picture for you. Let's look at First Kings. Okay, this is a Solomon's kingdom. Okay. Now, Hiram, Hiram, king of Tyre, 
sent his son, servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. Next slide. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest, in some translations, peace. On every side, there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And, I be- and behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord spoke to my father, David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. If you look at that text in its original language, the word adversary literally transcribes to the word Satan. There is neither Satan nor evil occurrence. I do not believe that in Solomon's reign that Satan all of a sudden vanished. I don't think he did. But I think that, and I believe that Solomon had such a kingdom of peace. There was such peace that governed uh, Solomon's kingdom, there was such a prevailing atmosphere of peace that Satan had no influence in Solomon's kingdom. Wow. The prince of peace crush, crushes the head of Satan. In the New Testament, the, the New Testament equivalent of that verse would be Jesus saying, Satan has no hold on me. Right, yeah. He has no influence. Wow. Being a people of peace, it means that we are no longer influenced by the powers of darkness. We are no longer influenced by the lies of the enemy. We are no longer influenced by the kingdom of darkness. We are now submitted, governed by he who is peace. And that peace is not passive, it's active. It crushes every attempt of the enemy. It's the prince of peace that crushes the head of Satan. Is that making sense? So I, I started this uh, morning with talking about becoming a people of peace, you know, embracing the way of peace, becoming peacemakers, uh, being on a mission of peace. And um, you know, because I'm grafted into the kingdom of peace, I'm no longer influenced by the devil. The Bible says we were once alienated from God, but because of what Jesus did, the work of reconciliation, we are now citizens of heaven coming out of the dark, kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of God's kingdom. And because I have been saved and set free from such a kingdom... <laughs> a kingdom that is without peace, a kingdom that is influenced by the enemy. Okay? And now I've been grafted into God's kingdom. Okay? It means I have access to things, rights to things that I no longer have, uh, that, that I didn't have before. Right. Now that I'm part of God's kingdom, I am free from sin. I have access to his presence. No more guilt, no more shame. I have access to that peace which is shalom, wholeness, completeness, contentness. Right now I'm part of that kingdom. But the sad truth is that many Christians, even though the price has been paid for that, uh, if you will, transition, we still live as though we are part of the kingdom of darkness. We still live influenced by the lies of the enemy, by the way the enemy works. Am I making sense? It's like if I were to take a a Coke bottle, okay? Okay, and I take off the Coke bottle label and I put on it even water, for example. Okay, how many know even though I change the label, okay, the contents, okay, it's still Coke, right? You know something's truly changed when whatever is happening internally is changed as well. Your internal system. And so it's not as simple as professing, I am Christian. But you know what kingdom you are part of by how much your internal world, your principles, your beliefs, your thoughts are influenced by the kingdom of light. Your operating system, if you will. I'm making sense. And this is what we're committed to finding out, to be honest. You know, we're committed to finding out how does God's kingdom work and how do I come into a greater alignment with the way he works. I'm making sense. So we are saved out of 
darkness into light. We have now new access to certain rights, privileges, if you will. But because we have transitioned out, we have also lost rights that we had in that kingdom, being part of the kingdom of darkness. And this morning, to close up, I want to share with you three rights that we have lost now that we are part of God's kingdom, now that we are part of the kingdom of peace, now that we are about the way of peace, now that we have embraced the identity of being a peacemaker, we have lost the right to do three things. And I believe as we, as we embody uh, what it means to be a people of peace, we'll begin to see our spheres of influence change, transformed by the glory of God. You know, I attended a talk um, uh, this week, and uh, it was a... As a diplomat, you know, he came up and um, um, great talk. He, he talked about peace. He talked about, you know, it was basically a similar piece of how to have peace. And the talk closed with a, a question and answer. And um, this guy was in the government. And so different people in the, uh, in, you know, that were attending, they started asking questions about uh, uh, the different conflicts that were happening globally, like North Korea, Malaysia, di- different, different things. They, they were just asking all these questions. And the speaker's reply, uh, though uh, really politically correct, uh, left me extremely uh, concerned because he seems to suggest, and I believe most of us uh, would currently still uh, embrace that thought, that the Christian is just meant to be a person who is at peace, have peace, and let whatever is happening outside happen, and then one day it will not happen and we'll go to heaven that as Christians, we are just called to have the internal peace and not affect anything around us. Like, let whatever's happening outside happen, okay? And then I have peace. But look at what Jesus did. He had peace in the boat. He got up and he rebuked the storm. He said, peace, be still. Your internal world is supposed to define and impact your external world. To be a peacemaker... It doesn't just stop at you having peace. Yes. You're about a mission of peace. You're about uh, yeah. releasing peace wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it troubles me that most of us think that way. Mm. We think one day, man, we'll, we'll get out of here. Can I put it to you that the gospel is not an evacuation project? It's a call to transfigure a broken and lost world. I don't know whether you read this book, but you read at the end, right? Jesus is coming back to rule and reign on the earth. Most of you think one day we'll tell. But he's coming to rule and reign on the earth. Jesus didn't just call himself the savior of mankind. He said he's the savior of the world. Because the world means something to him. The gospel is not an evacuation project. It's a call to transfigure this world. And the gospel is meant to impact not just mankind, but human society as we know it. Through people who are aligned to kingdom beliefs, kingdom principles, who model what it means to be part of this kingdom. And together, collectively, we shape the world in which we live in until the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of our God. Three rights that we've lost. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Some of you might want to jump back to the kingdom of darkness after I'm done, but I encourage you, this side is much better. Oh, I lost my right to this. I'm just kidding. First right that we've lost. I've lost the right. To hopelessness. Come on. I've lost the right to hopelessness. There is not an area of your life that is worthy of hopelessness. There's not an area of your life that is worthy of hopelessness. Romans 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says this in the Bible, it says this of Jesus, that Jesus lived... Okay, he only did what he saw the Father doing. Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. What is the implication? It means this. It means that whenever Jesus was faced with a situation, with a circumstance, he looked into heaven, saw what the Father was doing, and he modeled it. Amen. The implication of that is that Jesus never lived in reaction to the devil, in reaction to circumstance, in reaction to situation. He lived in response to the Father. Yes. Jesus was never impressed by the size of the problem. He was always impressed by how big his father was. Oh, yeah. 
Hopelessness is a choice. There are no hopeless situations, only hopeless people. He never lived in reaction to the devil. He lived in response to the Father. Hopelessness and complaining is to the devil what worship is to God. <laughs> Hopelessness and complaining is to the devil what worship is to God. How many of you remember children this row? They complaining. They muttered, 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 murmur, 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 murmur. And then uh, the Bible talks about how snakes came up from the ground yeah. and bit them and killed them. Snakes is often a representative of uh, the demonic, the king of darkness. Complaining attracts the demonic. Yeah. Flip it around. What attracts the angelic? Praise. Thanksgiving. Wow. You want to see more of the activity of God in your life? Oh, Praise. Thank you. Yeah. You're making sense? Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's good. Okay, Philippians 4. Let's look at Great verse. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. I think our prayers ought to be defined more by thanksgiving than by what we don't have. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Philippi from prison. Okay, You know, we read the verse earlier. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. That is so unique. Because, you know, when, when you know, they, they wrote the commandments, they didn't go, Thou shalt not murder, and again I say to you, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal, and again I say to you, Thou shalt not steal. You know, there's, there's almost such emphasis to this thing of, having joy, having great peace in our lives. Rejoice in the Lord always and again. I will say rejoice. And goes on to say, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. I don't know whether I have that. We do. Okay. It says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. For most of us, when I talk about the word, word spiritual warfare, we think prophetic acts. Shaba Shaba, we think blow shofar, we think copious amount of prayer, praying in tongues. Love it, do it. But in 2 Corinthians, it seems to suggest that warfare takes a different form. We do not war according to flesh, we war according to spirit. And it says this, it says that this is warfare. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Warfare is taking every thought into captivity. It's managing your thought life. The Bible talks about how the city, right? Uh, I think, believe it's Isaiah, it says its walls are called salvation. In the New Testament, we wear in the armor of God the helmet of salvation. Okay, the walls that defend the city, okay, we now wear around our heads. We ought to guard. Our thought life. Guard your hearts. The peace of God, okay? In Philippians 4, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice it doesn't say, take every thought captive to obey Christ. It says to the obedience of Christ. What is the obedience of Christ? The cross. Every thought that you have, ought to be defined by what Jesus has already done on the cross for you and me. That means that when you get a negative doctor's report, your thought should be defined by what Jesus has purchased for you on the cross. That means when you have a negative circumstance, you ought to think on this side of the cross. He's paid the price for you. Because of what Christ has done for you, you have lost every right to hopelessness, to hopeless living. 
How many of you know that what is fact isn't always truth? Yeah? yeah. yeah? yeah. What is fact isn't always truth? Yeah. It's a piece that surpasses all understanding, all logical reasoning. I think that's good. It's peace and hope. Eternity with God is to be the cornerstone of all logic and reasoning. When we make a decision without eternity in mind, that decision is a short-sighted one. We can have great hope because we have been guaranteed the eternity with the Lord. What's the worst thing that can happen? You die, you spend eternity with God. (laughs) What's the best thing that can happen? You die, spend eternity with God. That should give you hope, peace. That no matter the trials of this world, no matter what I face on this planet, no matter what I go through, no matter the pain I'm going through right now, at the end of the day, I have eternity with God. And that gives me complete peace. Hope. I'm making sense. I love it. (laughs) Ooh, okay. Going to go fast here. Um, Next thing that I've lost the right to. I believe that as a church, being a people of peace, being people who are on a mission to establish peace on the planet, we have lost the right to enmity. Enmity, you know, it means to be actively opposed. To be actively opposed. In the Old Testament, the lepers, the, the unclean ones, you know, when they touch the clean, they contaminated them. In the Old Testament, if you were to carry a lamb to the temple, spotless, blem- uh, without blemished lamb to the temple, to be sacrificed, and if someone walked up to you and spat on that lamb, the lamb is now unclean. If someone was going through the menstrual cycle and touched you as you were going to a temple, you are now unclean as well. But how many of you know that the game has changed because of the new covenant, because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you? Now the lepers do not contaminate the clean. Jesus cleanses the lepers. The game has changed. Complete flip around. It's different. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 14 and 18 says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Because of the cross of Jesus, because you are a people of peace, were called to establish peace, there is now no longer us and them. There is now no longer us and them. Jesus hung around sinners so much that they they thought he was one. It's sad to, 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 uh, to know that the church today is more known for standing up against sinners than sitting with them. Jesus shows, us, shows all of us that we do not need to be in agreement to love. Many times we think peace only occurs when everything is worked out. But Jesus seems to suggest differently. He talks about this thing called reconciliation. And reconciliation, if you look at the original text, it, the word recon- reconciliation, katalaso, uh, is the word used to describe the exchanging of money. So picture this. Reconciliation is not when you have everything works out, everything is, is, is balanced and you, know, you, you work everything out. Reconciliation looks like taking what you have, that which troubles you, that which, uh, you know, you know uh, it's, it's a, a point of contention and exchanging it, putting it away and receiving love and acceptance. Reconciliation looks like that. It looks like putting away, not settling, it's giving it away, getting rid of it and exchanging it for something else. That's what reconciliation looks like. And Jesus says that that peace that we are called to walk into and embody is reconciliation. It's the putting away. 
In the Bible, it says this, you know, when you, when you are, uh, when you're dealing with someone who is unrepentant, it says, uh, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And this is Jesus' words. If they refuse to listen, if they refuse to repent, turn away from whatever they're doing, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. We have to read the verse in the context of Jesus' life. How did Jesus treat the pagans and the tax collectors? With love. Peace. It's not predicated on them working their stuff out. Am I making sense? We should not draw conclusions on how far the love of God can go. We often, we, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's just me. You know, we think about it this way. The sinners, they are enemies, you know, transgressors. You know, keep them away from us. You know. but, but Jesus, you know, through peace, through what he did for us on the cross, he tore down that divide, he tore down that wall for us to be reconciled, for us to bring peace and bring the realities of the kingdom to that people who so desperately needs it. I wonder if we can collectively be a church of peace. That would look like being a church that will welcome, will embrace anyone, you know, despite of their beliefs, the season in their life, you know, uh, what process they are going through. I wonder if we can be such a people that carries that, that atmosphere, which is peace. Now, I've not come to bring hostility towards you, despite of your different beliefs, I've come to bring you peace. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This series is really a, a culture-building series, you know, and, and I, I hope for whatever that's been shared, that's been said to, the, to impact our culture, to impact the way we do life, to impact the way we do church. And I want to target a very specific area when it comes to this thing of hostility, enmity, to be actively opposed. Yeah. I want to target this area of gossiping. Pastors are very susceptible to gossiping because we know a lot of information. So this is speaking to Andre. Gossip to me is what kills unity in churches. It destroys relationship. You know, Jesus, uh, when, when, when talking to his disciples, he says, you know, if you know, there's any quarrel within you, if you, know, you have stuff that you need to work out, go work it out before you leave a gift at my altar, before you offer something to me. Jesus prioritizes us being right relationally, us being united above worship to him. I know that's a radical idea for you and for some of you, but that's, that's Bible. Jesus so values unity in the body, it's so much on his heart, that any area, I propose to you, any thing or any attempt to destroy unity among the brethren is by its nature anti-Christ. Gossip destroys unity. Any attempt against unity is anti-Christ. Proverbs 26, 20. Let's go. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, some translations say gossip, strife ceases as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire. So is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tailbearer are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. Gossip is temporal satisfaction. It does not bring reconciliation. Gossip is different from confiding. It is different from confiding. <laughs> Gossip is all about amassing followers, changing opinions. Confiding has at its heart reconciliation. James says, this, James says to confide in one another and pray that you may be reconciled. If whatever your talk is, doesn't permit the Holy Spirit to be involved, doesn't end with prayer, then you probably should cut it out. (laughs) Romans 1, it talks about uh, sinners. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters. The Bible equates gossiping to evil. It does. I know, hard to swallow. It does. James 1, chapter 26. Uh, James 1, verse 26. 
I'm gonna book it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. I'll just leave it up there. Don't have to explain it. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch, James. The last right that we've lost. Ready? I have lost the right to vengeance. I've lost the right to vengeance. Let's have the verse up, Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. How many of you are familiar with Romans 12? Yeah? What, how does Romans 12 start? It says this. It says, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of mind. And Paul would go on to suggest what it means to live life of a different world, being under the rulership of this kingdom. It says this. Now that you're part of this kingdom, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is in the right, in the, what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, "It's mine to avenge; I will repay," says the Lord. From the dawn of human civilization, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve have exercised the capacity to choose good and evil, right and wrong for themselves. But the witness of history is that these choices are consistently poor, misguided, self-centered, and lead to disastrous consequences. Thus, human history is a bloody tale. Violence and vengeance first began with Cain. Cain, because of jealousy and strife, would kill his brother Abel. Genesis accounts for this and the Lord would say to Cain, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond. You shall be on the earth. Next slide. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken. As Genesis continues to tell the human story, we find that five generations after Cain, humanity is picking up speed as it flies away from Eden. Listen to what Cain's descendant Lamech tells his wife's. This is five generations after Cain. Adal and Zillah, hear my voice, you wise of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. Cain's sevenfold vengeance has now become a seventy-sevenfold vengeance as a violence, as violence gains a demonic connecting energy and pushes humanization, human civilization to the brink of self-destruction. We are all familiar with the story about Noah and Noah's ark, you know, how God had to destroy the planet and, uh, and not destroy the planet, wipe out you know, the human race and start over. And when we talk about the sin of Noah's generation, we would often think, oh, they, they are probably like very lustful people, very lewd, they are probably like, you know, full of you know, sex and ungodliness. But in Genesis, it, it describes the sin of Noah's generation. And, and watch this, Genesis, it says this, now the earth was corrupted in God's sight. It was corrupted. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Since the start of human life, civilization, Abel and Cain, human race okay, has perpetuated perpetuated an endless cycle of violence and vengeance. Endless cycle. You kill me, I kill you. I want this, I'm going to take it from you. I'm going to put it back. You know, and most of us, okay, all of us are probably not murderers, yes? There's no murderers, yeah? But we have partaken, you know, we have uh, been influenced by this system, by this way of doing things, an eye for an eye. Evil for evil, evil, tit for tat, right? You do this to me, you come against me in that manner, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to push back. And what happens? That person pushes back, and it becomes an endless cycle of vengeance, right? 
That's the way the world works. That's the way it's always been. Right? Nation against nation. Man against man. But how many of you know that Jesus, in his mission to planet Earth, to bring peace, he said no to vengeance. Whatever you're doing to me, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And he seems to suggest to you and me that perhaps the way to seeing the world transformed is not to continually perpetuate the cycle of vengeance, but to offer love, forgiveness, peace to those who transgress against you. The way the world works is this. Vengeance begets more vengeance. But being a people of peace, we break the cycle. We offer peace. That's, That's what it means to be a peacemaker. No more vengeance, no more violence, no more partaking in what has corrupted humanity and what is so wrong with the human condition. You're making sense. Hebrews tell you, say that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than Abel's blood. The blood that was shed, forgiven blood, speaks a better word than the blood that was shed by, by Abel. Hebrews 12. Am I making sense? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'll close with this. Romans 12 says, Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The word that's used to describe the renewed mind is the word metanoia. Metanoia occurs one other time in the Bible. And that word metanoia was used to describe the transfiguration. Jesus uh, ascended the Mount of Transfiguration. He encountered the Lord. It says that his his clothes uh, shine like like a bright white light. His face outshined the sun. And it was um, one of the most defining uh, moments in the life of Jesus, that that, that, that transfiguration. And when Jesus descended from that place of encounter, it says that Jesus encountered a little boy who was demonized, and he set the boy free from his demons. And every year, churches all around the world will commemorate the 6th of August as the day of the transfiguration. Called the Feast of Transfiguration. We commemorate this day, we celebrate this day in which is the transfiguration, that day where Jesus encountered God and his face shined the glory of God and he healed the little boy. This is nauseatingly poetic, but... Some 1900 years later, on the 6th of August, 1945, a little boy, who's no longer a person, a bomb would be dropped in Japan, Hiroshima. And that land would be engulfed in white light. And that light was not the glory of God. That day, to me, is the pinnacle of human depravity. It's some way accumulation of that endless cycle of vengeance and violence. Einstein said this. Einstein said that if he knew that his work would have led to this bomb, he would have become a plumber. To be a people of peace means that we, we no longer endorse vengeance. We no longer celebrate violence. Some of you might have questions like, is it ever justifiable to drop bombs to kill people? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. It's never justifiable to celebrate death because he's not willing that any shall perish. To celebrate something that he does not will is to go against the very heart of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. As a people of peace, we never celebrate death we never endorse violence or vengeance. Am I making sense? Let's then. I want to close with this prayer by a, a monk named uh, St. Francis of Assisi. 700 years ago, a remarkable man was born and. Although he was destined to be a knight, he 
forsook the path of wealth and fame, choosing instead to wear a ragged cloak tied with a rope borrowed from a scarecrow. He spent his days preaching and giving to others. He chose to live life in utter poverty. And this is what St. Francis of Assisi said. He said this, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. To be a people of peace means that we are no longer conformed to the patterns of the world. We no longer operate the way the world does. We no longer partake in vengeance. We are no longer uh, negative in our thought life. We do not embrace hopelessness. We do not uh, go about the works of hostility and enmity. But we are about peace. And collectively, as we do so, as we embody the mindset and eventually the lifestyle of establishing peace on the planet, perhaps, I'd like to suggest to you that the world can be a better place. Perhaps this world can be changed. Perhaps revival can be released on this planet. Revival is not something that we ought to think of as a law three mindset mentality. A revival is when Christians choose to live like Christ every day of their lives.